If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Uh, some of you might have been perplexed why you got that on the church app uh, last night for family worship prep, but uh, you probably were going, well, how's he going to connect this to the Lord's Prayer, you know, walking through uh, Matthew 21. Well, today we're actually taking a, a, a break from the Lord's Prayer uh, to talk about uh, events that are going to lead up to Easter, uh, up to, to, you know, Resurrection Sunday, if you're, if you're, if you're slightly more Puritan, if you're really Puritan, you just call it another papal invention. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, you're like super Puritan. Uh, but I, 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 want, I want our entire calendar, the idea of, of, of why I do this, I want our entire calendar to be wrapped around the biblical story as much, if not more so, than our calendar is driven by the secular events of history. So if we can celebrate the 4th of July, you know, why can't we you know, celebrate Easter? If we have President's Day, why not Palm Sunday? And why not, I think, even more so? So now... We, we want to understand as we're taking a break to look at these, we're not saying that these days are in themselves more holy, okay? It is certainly true that for Christians, every Sunday should be Easter Sunday. You know, every Lord's Day should be as holy as that Lord's Day as Resurrection Sunday. But we're going to take time to rejoice in what has really happened in this world. We're going to take a, a couple of weeks to think about the momentous events that have taken place, uh, not just religious events, but actual historical world-changing events uh, that we get chronicled for us. We get the history laid out. Look, I'm a history teacher, and, if, and I'll tell you this, or I used to be. I guess I'm not anymore. So, uh, and I'll tell you this. History is, is just, a, you know, the only way people write history books is to say that the other person who wrote a history book is lying, and that's not what happened. This is what happened. And I mean, it is back and forth. It is just revisionist history upon revisionist history. So it is joyous for us to be able, in a world that says, trust the whatever, to be able to say, we can trust what scriptures laid out. These are actual events, and God has detailed them for us so that we can know precisely what happened and of all the events in human history, for him to slow down and focus in detail on these days means this is something that the Lord wants us to know about. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. It's a very appropriate week for us to, uh, as we think about Holy Week and the, you know, as history is moving toward God providing our atonement, providing the forgiveness. I mean, that we've, I mean, think of what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Father, our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. So we've been talking about those debts and, and how poignantly timed that now we are coming up on the moment in history where God does exactly that, where the atonement for our debts is paid, uh, where the, the blood that should have been our blood uh, is shed for our debts. So it's a, it's a very appropriate time for us to look at this because this is a day, uh, these are the days when our infinite debt is going to collide with an even more infinite sacrifice. And so we're going to take a moment today. We're going to talk about the triumphal entry. Today we're going to talk about Palm Sunday and what that day teaches us about the kingdom of Christ uh, and our own place in that kingdom. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. And we're going we're to read from Matthew. We're going to read Matthew chapter 21. We'll read verses 1 through 11. 
The triumphal entry is recorded in all the Gospels. We're going to focus on the Matthew 21 uh, passage, but we'll be pulling in from all of the Gospels as well. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so these events exactly as they took place, says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone, asks, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that, Father, as we look at your word and as we look at uh, the events that took place leading up to uh, the resurrection, leading up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection, Father, that, that we would glean from these pages wisdom into our own hearts and that we would recognize where we are in the story and where we would have been if it were not for your grace. Father, may we be amazed by the forgiveness that is going to be purchased for us through the blood of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we've got this story of the triumphal entry, and the question that normally plagues us is, how do we go from this, right? How do we go from this event to the crucifixion? How do we go from people praising uh, Jesus and and calling him king and savior, the crowds uh, there really, you know, chanting Hosanna to those same crowds or then at least more crowds chanting crucify him? How do we go from that in in less than a week? How does that happen? And again, that's always fascinated me. I remember as a as a kid, always sort of being in wonder, trying to figure out what happened in this sort of giant group psychosis event that, that, that goes on. But the truth is, in many ways, the answer is right here in the text. So today we're going to look at an unripe coronation. Uh, the story behind the, the triumphal entry, this idea of an unripe coronation. And so to do that, let's begin uh, this story of this sometimes fickle humanity in, in verse 1. It says this. So just as we follow along, so just, you can follow along in, in Matthew 21. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. So, so Matthew is setting the stage for us. Matthew is, is we're coming close to Jerusalem, Jesus, and, and Jesus said by this point has been traveling toward Jerusalem for some time. He's been traveling. He set out from Galilee, setting his face toward Jerusalem, and he's been traveling about 100 miles to get there. He's been traveling th- this whole time, and, and by now John tells us uh, that this day as he's drawing close is, is 
uh, and that there is a very large crowd following him. It tells us that in Matthew chapter 20, if you want to look back just a few verses, Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, tells that a large crowd has now joined him as he's walking, and that crowd is only continuing to grow and only going to continue to grow. And as they get near to Jerusalem, Matthew notes, and they come to Bethphage. Now, we are so familiar or so unfamiliar with Jewish culture and Jewish names and Jewish geography that our eyes normally pass over details like that. We don't know anything about Bethphage. It's like when we get to the genealogies and we have to fight the temptation to just kind of go la, 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 la through the names till the story picks back up again. Uh, hopefully after our discussion of Matthew chapter one, you never do that again. Uh, but we, we, we have a tendency to do that, to look at this and go, well, okay, this is, so he comes to Jerusalem. I know that city. And then he goes by uh, some city, uh, but that's the issue. We go, oh, that's just another city. It's not Jerusalem. That's the point. Bethphage is just another city. So why mention it? This, this is this story, the story of, uh, of the triumphal entry. This is the only place in the Bible where you have this city mentioned. Uh, to the point that people aren't really sure exactly where on the, how close to Jerusalem Bethphage is. We do know that it's east of Jerusalem. We know that much. That's going to that's be important later, that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem from the east. We may not know much about Bethphage because it has no other story, but we do know this, what it means. Bethphage, Bethphage means literally house of figs. And not just house of figs, it means house of unripe figs. House of green figs, not ready to be harvested figs. This is a house of unripe figs. And so as we come to this house of unripe figs, so we come to house of unripe figs, we're getting a hint already about what's going to happen and why. Because look at how it continues. Then Jesus, this is the end of verse 1, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord needs them and he'll send them at once so jesus asks for a donkey and a colt he says go into this town you're going to find one uh you won't even have to ask around it'll be you'll find it immediately as soon as you get there untie them and bring them to me and i've always said it's funny notice that he doesn't say ask he just says go there you're going to find them just untie it in the other gospels you know here he says if anyone uh, he says if anyone says anything to you uh say this in the in the other one it, it It says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying that donkey? Uh, You just say to them, the Lord needs them. So you get there, you just see it and go, oh, that's the, the, the donkey and the colt. So you just untie them, start bringing them. If anyone asks, this is what you say. Uh, tell them the Lord needs them. So go to this town, you'll find a colt, you'll find its mom, untie them and bring them. Now, why? I mean, because, okay, in Jesus' life, the disciples have been asked to do a lot of weird things, right? But even, this is even weird for that. I mean, I want you to go to a town, find a donkey and a colt and bring it. And they're just like, all right. Uh, Okay. So, I mean, at this point, after all that they've seen, really, would it be shocking for this to happen? Why are they to go get this colt and its mom though? Why? It's obviously not because he's tired. Jesus, Jesus walked all the way from Galilee. He doesn't need a donkey 
for the last few steps. It's like when I drove all the way to Nantucket and back, and Miss Nancy finally offered to drive when we were just outside Tulsa on the way back. Uh, and I was like, I made it this far. I'm making it the whole way. I'm not having you steal my glory by saying Chris and I drove it. Uh, so he doesn't need, he doesn't need a donkey here to make it the last year. He's not too winded now after this hundred mile trip to all of a sudden he can't go that far. It's, it's not because he likes to ride either. So he doesn't need it because he's tired and he doesn't need it because he likes to travel on donkey. In fact, This is the only time in the life of Jesus that we have a record of him traveling on anything but foot. So it's not because he's tired. It's not because he likes to ride. So he's traveled this whole way, gets to the edge of Jerusalem, says, get me a donkey. He's traveled on foot the whole time throughout his whole ministry that we know of. He gets to the edge of Jerusalem, says, get me a donkey. The point is clear. Jesus is wanting to do something. This is something abnormal. Something is about to happen. Get to the outskirts of Jerusalem. You get to the city of unripe. You're you're at the city of unripe figs. And you say, get me a donkey and a colt. Why? What is the purpose? Well, Matthew tells us. Matthew lets us know. Beginning in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And look, I encourage you. Go back through the book of Matthew and just underline every time Matthew has said this was spoken to fulfill, this was spoken to fulfill, this was spoken to fulfill. So it's a helpful tool when you're reading the the book of Matthew. This was happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the, the, the purpose of this, of this triumphal entry, the purpose of getting the colt and getting the donkey is to show Jerusalem that their king has come. Jerusalem, the, the, the city that Jesus calls the city of the great king. Matthew chapter 5, verse 35. He's, he's quoting from Psalm 48, 2. So in Matthew 5, Jesus calls Jerusalem the city of the great king, quoting Psalm 48.2. And now Jesus says, give me a colt and a donkey because I'm going to show the city of the great king their king has come. This is a monumental shift though. This is a monumental shift in Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' life. Up to this point, I mean... So Jesus has been known as king since his birth, right? It's been known that he is the king of Israel since he was born. The wise men, they come into town saying what? We're looking for he who's called king of the Jews. Nathaniel, at the very beginning of his ministry, what does Nathaniel proclaim? You are the son of God, the king of Israel. And up to this point, even though other people have proclaimed Jesus king, up to this point, Jesus himself has shied away from proclaiming himself as king. He's even withdrawn. So you've even had crowds that have come to make him king, wanted to make him king by force. And Jesus has withdrawn from people who wanted to make him king. So this is a pivotal moment in the work of Christ. Jesus is in this moment going from refusing to be called king, to openly proclaiming himself as the king that fulfills the promise of the prophets. The purpose is obvious. The the king is coming to the city of the great king and he's coming the way that God said he would come. 
Jesus is, just as Jesus, you know, read from the book of Isaiah and stood up and said, this has been fulfilled in your midst. This is Jesus getting on this colt and this donkey and saying, this is, this is it. This is fulfilled. This is Zechariah fulfilled in your midst, Israel, Jerusalem. The great king has come. And then, then, so where did God say this? He says this in Zechariah chapter 9. Matthew says this was spoken by the prophet. Well, what prophet? This is Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Zechariah 9, beginning of verse 9, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is from Zechariah 9. First, Zechariah is a great book. I mean a great book. It is one of my favorite Old Testament books. If you don't know anything about the 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 book of Zechariah, go dig into it. Go read it today. If you're like, Zechariah, where's that found? Or you're trying to figure out where Zechariah is versus Zephaniah. And like, go read Zechariah. You'll be blessed. Uh, and so Zechariah is a great, a great book. Well, what did Zechariah prophesy? Here we see in Zechariah 9 that Zechariah prophesied that there would be a time This is really before we're at here in Zechariah 9. So let's set up the context a little bit. Zechariah has just prophesied a time when the nations will seek the Lord in Jerusalem. That the nations will see the blessings of following God and want to know more about this God of Israel. Zechariah has just promised that he will turn the enemies of Israel into worshipers of God. That he will, and I love this picture, that he will snatch their bloody iniquities out of their mouths as he redeems them. So that he says, even the Philistines will one day be called a tribe of Israel. Some pretty amazing promises here. And then we get to this and it's like, well, how's all that going to happen? How are we going to have a moment where the nations are flooding Jerusalem, where you get the nations wanting to know about the Lord, where the enemies of God becoming worshipers of God, where even the Philistines become as the tribes of Israel? How's that going to happen? Jerusalem's king is coming, and he will bring it. And that's a time, Zechariah says in in verse 9, it's a time of celebration, a time of rejoicing, a time of shouting aloud that your king has come. And what type of king is he? A king who brings righteousness, who brings justice, who brings salvation. And how will he come? He will come humble and mounted on a donkey. Now for us, when we think of a donkey, we think, you know, that's the humility part. That's just another humble beast. You have to to remember that a donkey was a symbolic means of transportation for the kings of Israel. I mean, there was nothing, I mean, if if we see someone on a donkey, we're not like, wow, did you see that dude riding a donkey? Like, he must be important. We might think he must be special, but we're not going to think he must be important. Uh, and, 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 but, but for Israel, it was. You go back, and we know, we know this if we're Jews. We know this if we're first century Jews. And we know this if we know our Old Testaments. Venora Testament very well. Because remember what happened? Remember what happened in the story of David and Absalom when, Ab- when David is exiled from the city? David is leaving Jerusalem. 
And as he's being exiled, do you know what they bring to him to let him ride? A donkey. We see this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 16. It's, it's going to be Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. He's not going to let David walk out of the city. He's going to give him donkeys. So he says, uh, 2 Samuel 16, 2, And the king said to Ziba, uh, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. But that's not it. David, David carries this on as well. In fact, when Solomon becomes king, when Sol- how did Solomon enter Jerusalem when he's proclaimed king? And when all, So when Solomon comes to the city of Jerusalem, guess how he comes? On a, on a donkey. He comes riding a mule. And all the people went up with him. And as, as Solomon is coming into Jerusalem, the people, the great, there are great crowds following him. And these great crowds are shouting. In fact, they're shouting so loudly that it says the earth was split by their rejoicing. You can see this in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 40. It says, and all the people went up after him. So Solomon, how does Sol- so David leaves Jerusalem on a donkey. Solomon enters it. On one, And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. So we've had a moment of a king coming into Jerusalem before, and people so celebrating that the earth is split. Remember that. And the earth is split by their, uh, by their celebration. But he comes not just on a donkey, he comes on a foal. The, the colt of a donkey. Now, why does Zechariah tell us that? The other gospels even make a point of saying, it's not just a fold. This is a, this is a fold that no one has ever even sat on. Why, why are they making a point to tell us that no one's ever sat on this? And it, the, the point they're trying to make is Jesus is not riding in on a war horse. And that's the point Zechariah is trying to make too. As, as David left the city on a donkey, the son of David is going to return to the city on one. And Jesus isn't charging into battle here. The promised king in Zechariah 9 isn't charging into battle. He's walking calmly to his exaltation, to his coronation. And he doesn't need a war horse. And why does, why does the king not need a war horse in Zechariah 9? Because Zechariah is going to tell us because the Lord is going to go before him. Look at Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. This is exactly what Zechariah goes on to say. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So remember how tempted, you know, tempted Israel and their kings were to trust in horses and to trust in chariots. And he says, when my king comes, he's going to ride a donkey. Why? Because I'm going to go before him. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, so the, Lord is, the Lord in Zechariah 9 is going to come and he's going to take Israel's tools of war. Why? Because he is the one who is going to bring peace and will cause his king to reign from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth that's what that's why jesus says get a donkey and get a colt because he's the king 
and he's coming to claim his throne. And the Lord is going to bring peace to the nations through his name. He will speak peace. And the disciples do what he said. Drop, jump back to Matthew 21, uh, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So they, I mean, they, this is not, they're so unprepared, they don't even have a saddle. They just, they just throw their cloaks down for him to ride on. But we may, need, we may need to be reminded of Zechariah, but the people don't. The people there don't. When Jesus shows up on a donkey and a colt and with the disciples, they don't need to remember what Zechariah said. They don't need to remember this promise. They're not going, what in the world's with a, why would someone ride a donkey and a colt into Israel? Has anyone got their scrolls? You know, what could this be, be pointing to? They've been waiting for this. In fact, that's what, that's what some of the people in the crowd have been, even his own disciples, have been calling for this moment. Why don't you do this? Why don't you show you? They've been trying to force it on Jesus to proclaim himself as king. His own disciples wonder, when's it going to come? When's it going to happen? But now is the time. Now is the hour. And Jesus openly proclaims what even the rest of the world already knew to be true. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. And so the people respond. They don't, Jesus doesn't have to say, guys, look, don't you remember I've got a colt and a donkey? I mean, I've got, a, I've got this foal. No one's ever sat on it. Remember, remember Zechariah? He doesn't have to do that. When he does that, what do the crowds do? Look at what it says uh, in verse 8. Most of the crowd, that's a bad translation, better translation, the very great crowd. The very great crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, now why spread cloaks on a road? Why do that? Because that's what you do for a king. When Jehu is anointed king in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, listen to what they did. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so the crowd, the very great crowd, forms this sort of red carpet for Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. That not only will his feet not touch the ground, his beast's feet will not touch the ground. As he enters Jerusalem, the city of the great king. The same thing with the branches. Now, Matthew just tells us that he, they cut branches from trees. It's John, the, and the others just mentioned branches. But it's John that tells us that they're, that they're actually palm branches, which is how the Sunday before Easter Sunday becomes known as Palm Sunday. But why branches? Why palm branches? Well, the, the palm branches are waved, waved a couple of times in Israel's history. One, they're, they're waved at the Feast of Booths. It was a sign of rejoicing. It was a sign of celebration. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Whether it's God dwelling with the people or God taking care of the people, you would, you would, they would wave palm branches as a sign of rejoicing. But that's also what they did. The waving of palm branches is also what they did 
the last time that Israel kicked their oppressors out of Jerusalem. The last time that Israel kicked out a foreign power reigning in Jerusalem, the people waved palm branches in celebration. It would be like a, a waving a palm branch is like remembering like a VE day. It would be the equivalent of us like waving an American flag. It's a celebration of freedom. So the people, they wave these branches. They wave the branches when they want a revolution against Syria. They wave the, the Jews during the Jewish wars against Rome. The Jews put, their, put branches on their coins, put palm branches on their coins. I think kind of like as a poke in the eye to Rome. Remember the last time we waved palm branches and we kicked somebody out. So, hey, Rome, look, we made a new coin. It's got palm branches on the back. Heads or tails, you know, something, I don't know. Uh, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. He's riding the donkey of a king on a coat of many colors, on coats of many colors, and branches of salvation and victory. But that's not all the crowds do. The crowds begin to evangelize. They begin to shout. They chant as they enter the city. Look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him. We're going to see how large these crowds are because we normally have an idea like 40 or 50 people, something like that. The crowds that are in front of him, the crowds that are behind him. In other words, this, this, this throng of people is getting so big. There's crowds up there. There's crowds back there. And as they begin to follow him before and behind, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the, crowd, the crowd's in front of Jesus. Like, like they're, they're like almost like John the Baptist's here. They're forerunners to Jerusalem about what's coming. And they run up into the city and they proclaim to Jerusalem what all this hubbub is about. And what are they shouting? Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna which is just in Hebrew, it's, it's almost like a prayer of salvation. Uh, it just literally, you know, save us. God, save us. By this time, Hosanna has become just a shout of praise, a recognition of this is God's salvation. This is him saving us. This is what we've been asking for. This is what we've been praying for. And so they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, to what? To the son of David. What salvation has come? The son of David has come. And now we know, we know how important this title is. We look deeply at the opening words of the, the book of Matthew, where Matthew says that, his, that Matthew is a book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We, we looked at that. And, and in Matthew, Matthew, Matthew is a book about Jesus as the son of David in many ways. It's, it, it, he's called the son of David multiple times. By saying Hosanna to the son of David, this is nothing short of saying, Hosanna, the king has come. And, and Mark, Luke, John, they're explicit because in those, they don't just say Hosanna to the son of David. They say Hosanna to the son of David. This is the king of Israel. But saying this is the son of David is more than just saying this is a king. By saying this is the son of David, this is saying this is the king. Any king could come and go. And many kings in Israel's life have come and gone. But the son of David 
was going to be a king like no other. In the Old Testament, the son of David was what? He would be a king that would reign in righteousness. He would be a king that clothed himself in righteousness and who was so righteous that his righteousness would spread throughout the earth. He was a king who would reign forever. He was a king who would bring salvation and rest to his people. He is a king who will have offspring like the sands of the sea and will give birth to an entire kingdom of priests. If you don't remember your Matthew 1 sermon that had all those passages and you want to know what passages are those from again, I can give those to you after the sermon. So when they're saying, Hosanna, this is the son of David, they're not just saying, here's our next king. They're saying, here is our savior. Here's the Messiah. Here's the Christ. And Jesus actually says they're right. In in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, one of the last things Jesus says in Scripture He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. All those things talked about the son of David. Yeah, that is me. But it's not just that he's the son of David. They don't just shout Hosanna to the son of David. They also talk about he who's come in the name of the Lord. This is God's answer. This is God's Christ. Now, interesting, this shout, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, is a shout of praise that comes from Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is the last song they would say, so they, they this, this Hallel, the songs that they would sing as they approached, they would sing the Psalms as they approached Jerusalem for their great feast day. So as the people are coming up, they had sort of a liturgy that they would sing and they would go through these Psalms and they would sing them as they got to this great city in this time of celebration, God's salvation. And Psalm 118 was the last one. And the words of this Psalm served as sort of a, of a climax to the pilgrims that were coming to these great feast days. And so these pilgrims who are also headed to Jerusalem, who are headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, for a feast day, are singing these psalms. And they've got these words stuck in their heads and they're singing them now, recognizing before when they sang them every time, you know, they had to come at least three times in the city. So every time they would come to the city and sing, sing these things, they always sang about the one who would come on a donkey, but now they're singing it next to the one who is coming on a donkey. And you can imagine how many times in their lives they were required to sing these songs, to sing Psalm 118 as they approached the temple. Every time finishing with this climax, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now some of them having probably sung these psalms a hundred times as they're approaching Jerusalem, now they're singing it next to the guy. They're singing it. Why? And I can't imagine like how you would look and and be singing about the one coming in the, and it's here and your dad sang about it and his dad sang it and their dad sang it for generation to generation to generation but you're singing and seeing and you can imagine the fervor of the people this is what this is what dad used to talk about when we would talk about Yahweh, we talk about God and his salvation. This is, what, this is what grandfather would talk about in the song he would sing. Remember how he would sing as he was old and still walking up the mountain and still praising God's name and blessed is he. And I'm singing what they sing, but I'm seeing what they wish they could have seen. 
and the joy and the fervor and the excitement. That's what's building. And so this is what they sang in Psalm 118 verses 26 and 27. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So bless those who come in the name of the Lord. Bless him from the house of God. Bless him from the temple. Why? Because the light has come. Get the sacrifice ready. And bind him to the altar. And as they're shouting... And singing this, that sacrifice is coming sitting on a donkey. And so they say, Hosanna to the highest. Hosanna in the highest. And that we're reminded of the words of the host of heaven at the birth of Jesus. When Jesus is born and then the host of heaven, you got the angels there. And then all of a sudden with the angels, it's a whole host of heaven, an army of heaven proclaiming what? Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, Zechariah 9, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So these are the words that they're shouting as they approach the city. God has saved us. The son of David is here. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The greatest praises possibly be lifted to our God. That's the environment that this is happening in. This isn't just a random group of people go, I like Jesus too. Whap, 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 whap our palm branches. Or it's hot. I mean, we're living in Jerusalem. Who doesn't want to take their coat off, you know, and throwing it on the road. That's not what's happening. And so since Jesus' fulfillment of all they sang about and all they lived for, they line the street with their own clothes. They're 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 running and tearing branches off of trees. Stripping the, the trees around the city like a great tornado. I can't imagine. You ever thought about what Jerusalem looked like after this? As a great crowd has just run to all the palm trees and ripped off all the branches? Imagine what it looks like after Friday or after the next Sunday when they're leaving the city from Passover and they're coming back down the mountain and the trees are stripped. And there was no cleanup crew to pick up all the prom branches. There wasn't some public works group to come out and clean them all up, still scattered on the side of the road. And remembering what happened last Sunday and then remembering what happened on Friday and going home not knowing what happened that Sunday. And they're tearing branches off and they're running in front of him and they're shouting to the city, the son of David has come. Our salvation is here. And so it's no surprise what happens next. Look at what it says in verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Saying, who is this? Now we've had, we've had quite a buildup to this celebration. This isn't some flash in the pan celebration of Jesus here. I mean, this crowd, you've got to understand how, how the approach to Jerusalem and everything works. This, this crowd would have been seen from a long way off. And you've got people entering the city telling what's coming. People leaving the city to go see for themselves. You've got that interchange. People coming in saying, son of David's here, son of David's here. And they're continuing on into the city. People who have heard going, what? And going out to see. So you've got this inflow and outflow of people joining the crowd. And then some of the people who probably heard and joined the crowd running back to get more people to tell them they're right. 
It is the son of David. He has come. By this time, to get a picture, he's, 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 it says he's coming down the Mount of Olives. He, he's cresting the hill. The, the procession is, is flowing before him and behind him. But he stands out. He's risen above the crowd on the donkey, silhouetted against the backdrop of open sky as he comes down the Mount of Olives. The sun shining on his face as he approaches Jerusalem. Highlighted, spotlighting this man. And the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king, is abuzz. And you, we've got to remember how many people are interested. Because we often pick, picture the Middle East, Jerusalem, like these small villages. And then Jerusalem is like just a really large small village. You know, this backwoods country town you know, like the begs of Israel or something like that. Like we just picture it different. But, but by this, when the Passover happens, we gotta, when, the, when the Passover, during the Passover, the, the city of Jerusalem would swell to more than 2 million people. 2 million people in that city. That's, that's more than five times the city of Tulsa. All of whom are traveling to the temple. All of whom are going to Jerusalem. I mean, the, the city is packed. The roads are packed. And Matthew says, you've got two million people and the whole city is stirred. I mean, and I, I mean this, is a testament. this is a testament to the size of the crowd that's coming with Jesus. Two million people aren't going to be stirred by a crowd of a hundred right? You're, I mean, a crowd of a hundred is just going to get swallowed up in a sea of two million people. There must have been a ginormous, a bajillion. Uh, there must have been a bajillion people uh, with Jesus. So the crowd is large. It's a testament to the size of the crowd. It's also a testament to their fervor. Because in order to share this word with enough of a city of 2 million people, you have to be telling a lot of people. There have to be a lot of the crowd running to say, he's here. Now, this has, of course, happened before for Jesus and for Jerusalem, for the city to be shaken by the arrival of Christ. Remember when the Magi showed up to Jerusalem? In Matthew chapter 2, Magi who came from where? From the east. Magi who would have passed through Bethphage on the way. What did they say some 30 years ago? Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And what happened when they said that in Matthew 2 3? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Well, Jerusalem is troubled again by the arrival of Christ. And the whole city is stirred. Literally, the whole city is shaken. That, that, that word there used to describe the, the, the city is used to describe the earthquake in Matthew 27 when Jesus dies and the earthquakes. It's the same word used there. These people are shaken. It's the word, it's where we get the word seismic activity. We get it from this word. People are shaken. Now, we don't know if the city as a whole is shaken because they're excited. 
or shaken because they're terrified. Because that same word is used to describe the guards at Jesus' tomb. When they see the angels, it says they tremble and become like dead men. But we've got a city of over 2 million people shaking because Jesus is coming. Their world is quaking. And it's literally about to be split wide open. And so everyone is asking, who is this? Who is this son of David? Who is this king? Verse 11, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, when we see this, at first it kind of seems like a letdown, doesn't it? Who is this? Oh, this is that prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You can see this and, and, and go, oh, well, that's kind of, you know, I expected more. But first we've got to see, rather than a letdown, you've got to understand this actually is, who, that actually is who Jesus is. Okay, so this isn't just some anticlimactic, ah, oh, it's just another prophet. First, that's, this is who Jesus is. But second, we've got to realize there's also an anticipation among the Jews that there would not just be another prophet, just like there wouldn't just be another king, but the king. There was hope not just for another prophet, but for the prophet. In fact, John picks up on the excitement of the people wondering if Jesus might be the prophet. John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So there was this expectation that the Messiah wouldn't just be a prophet, but would be the prophet. And so when they say it's Jesus the prophet, I mean, that's not necessarily saying this guy's just another prophet. Because the, the Messiah to come was going to be the prophet. But he's also the prophet who's from where? From Nazareth of Galilee. Now, why, that, why say that? Is that to distinguish him from other prophets named? This is Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, not like Jesus from Damascus of Syria or something like that. Why distinguish this here? Well, what did Matthew already tell us about Jesus being from Nazareth? In Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. And Joseph went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that well, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So you can already get on your homework of underlining every time that said Matthew might be fulfilled. What? That he would be called a Nazarene. So here we've got in this, in this announcement, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. You've already got this, this fulfillment of what the Messiah was anticipated to be. The prophet from Nazareth, a Nazarene. This is fulfilling what was already spoken. So who is this man? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. And that's where our reading stopped. And that's often where our triumphal entry stories stop. But we've got to remember what happens after this. And if you're following along in Matthew, you can see it. Remember, what's about, what does Jesus do after he gets to Jerusalem? He cleanses the temple. And then what does he do? He curses a fig tree. And then he goes through a whole group of parables that center around the idea that Jerusalem is not ready for her Messiah. In many ways, the story of Palm Sunday is a story from fig tree to fig tree. Jerusalem, the city of the great king, 
is Bethphage. It is a city of unripe figs. And she must either ripen or she will wither. So what can we learn from Palm Sunday? This story of this unripe coronation. Well, the clear picture we're supposed to ask is, are you an unripe fig? And look at, look at how, how Israel was this unripe fig, how they were this green fig, how you've got all of this buildup and all of this story and Jesus gets there with all of this crowd, the two million people stirred up, shaken, quaking, and yet by Friday crucified. One thing we can learn from this is an incomplete picture is an unripe picture. An incomplete picture of the gospel cannot ripen. The people were ready for a king on a donkey, but they were not ready for a king on a cross. And they should have been. They should have been. They should have been just as aware that that would happen as they were aware that the king on the donkey would happen. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? In fact, if they had, if they had kept reading Zechariah, they would have anticipated this. Listen to how Zechariah ends. It doesn't end with donkeys and it doesn't end with broken chariots. Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a foal, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. All of this, all that is about to happen, the march to Jerusalem, the donkeys, the chariots, the coming cross, all of it is because of the blood of the covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no Easter celebration. Without the shedding of blood, there is no ascension coronation. All of the praise we get from Easter comes from what his blood does for us. And it's a, it is the covering of his blood that ripens our withered figs. It is his blood that waters the seeds of the kingdom. Christians cannot be just a Palm Sunday people because a Palm Sunday alone people is an incomplete picture. We must, we must be Palm Sunday people. We must be people who shout, the king has come. We must be people who, who know he reigns and we must call the nations to repentance and belief and submission to the king. But we must also remember that this is not just a celebration. Jesus is marching into Jerusalem 
But where's the first place he marches to? Where does Zechariah say he's going to march to? Where did Psalm 118 say to take your shouts and praises to? He's marching to the temple. He's marching to the altar. Which means he's marching to the shedding of blood. Christians cannot simply be a people of love wins. They must be a people of how love wins. And it wins through the death of our sin. And every enemy of Christ will be placed under his feet until the last enemy is destroyed, which means Christians must be a people of the shedding of blood, of death to ourselves and of death to our sin. You can't have Palm Sunday unless you remember that the donkey is headed to the temple, to the altar, and is bearing on its back the lamb. The donkey is carrying the lamb, and he's carrying the lamb to die. If you have Palm Sunday, but you don't have binding the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, then you have an incomplete gospel, and you will find an unripe fig like Jerusalem found. Two million people, excited, shaken, stirred, celebrating, great crowds, and in five days, killing him. Because the fig tree withered. So, an incomplete picture is an unripe picture. The other thing we can get from Palm Sunday is praise is not a sign of ripeness. Praising God is not a sign that your fig is indeed right. We've got millions of people in the story with Jesus on their mind. A great crowd with Jesus on their lips. But as Jesus' parables make clear, following the story, following the great crowd, what happens? Flipping tables in the temple, cursing a fig tree, parable after parable about how they're not ready for their master. The city of the great king is not ready for the great king. The city that just shouted his praise and shook that the king was there. But praise is not a sign of ripeness. Jerusalem is an unripe fig. You get stories like Matthew 21, 15 and 16. The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. The children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And the crowds the two million Jerusalemites, the hundreds, thousands that praised him, perhaps even half, half half of the city, even a million that praised him will turn on him and call for his crucifixion after singing his praises just a few days ago. Many of us say we want Christ We say we want Christ. We say we want the Messiah. And I dare say that churches are filled with millions of people who are just like the Israelites. 
I mean, next Sunday, next Sunday in churches around the world, you're going to be filled with people who are going to shout about how much they love the coming of the king, how much they love Easter. But we must ask if all of that praise is the praise of an unripe fig. We want Jesus, but we don't want a cross. We want victory, but we don't want death to our sins. Learn from Jerusalem. Just because you're here and just because you're singing and even singing loudly and maybe even going and telling others to come with you and sing loudly with you doesn't mean that you're a ripe fig. If your sin does not die on the vine, then you will. And then lastly, the good news. The good news is that the kingdom doesn't require the fig tree to blossom. Meaning this, the barren fig tree, the barren fig tree of Jerusalem is about to meet a mustard seed. And the kingdom that cannot be stopped. <laughs> it's funny, John 12, John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to one another, this is after all of this is taking place, said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Jewish, leader, the Jewish leaders think the world's coming after Jesus at this point because there's a couple of Jewish crowds that are following him. It's funny, in the story of John, the very next thing that happens is a group of Gentiles then comes up and says, Sir, that, so, so you've got Jews following him. And they're like, look, the whole world's coming. The very next thing in John, Gentiles come up and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I mean, what a cinematic moment. What a moment for them to be like, ah, like, you know, like, ah, like John is showing us the kingdom cannot be stopped no matter how unripe the fig tree might be. <laughs> the gospel spreading beyond the Jews it's spreading beyond the fig tree, just as God promised it would. And in AD 70, God does wither Jerusalem on the vine. But in the process of doing that, he scatters mustard seeds throughout the known world. And that mustard seed becomes a tree big enough to house the nations. We live in a Palm Sunday world. And through the blood of Christ, the nations are ripe for the picking. And we must remember that. Let's pray. Just take a moment and think about yourself as a fig tree. Are you, how similar would you be to the city of Jerusalem? Shouting Jesus' praise, loving, singing or whatever, going and telling, but not ready for a king who dies and calls you to die. Ready, ready to, ready for him to be on the cross, but just to shut him up not ready for the blood of his covenant to kill your sin, to wash you, cleanse you, make you clean? Are you going to 
Are you going to be like those unripe figs who can spend the day singing praise to God, but then for the next five days give praise to your sin? Christian, take joy in this story as well. Because I'm assuming that the Spirit is comforting you and showing that your praise is indeed genuine, that you do love the Lord, and you're glad your sins are forgiven. These, these verses aren't just to make you all question whether or not you've ripened on the vine. You, the Spirit is showing you. The Spirit is testifying in your heart that you are indeed sons of God. I don't have to convince you of that. The Spirit will. If you're an unripe fig, the Spirit will tell you. And if you're not, the Spirit will comfort you and show you the fruits, the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And Christian... How can these unripe figs, how can these unripe figs be more earnest to share the gospel than we are? How can the story be so wonderful that even those who are going to end up hating him for it will go and tell the world? And we've got the gospel of the kingdom growing in our hearts. And we sit silent. We sit across the street from withered trees. We sit across the table from unripe figs who will face only the fire of destruction unless the blood of Christ brings them to life. And we say nothing. Maybe it's because we don't have the confidence in the kingdom that we should have. Maybe it's because we don't have confidence in the king. The king who comes riding on a donkey is ruler of heaven and earth. And his glory will reign from sea to sea and will cover the earth. Let's have that confidence. Let's have that joy. Let's be a Palm Sunday people. shouting the praises of our great King. Father, we come to you today, and God, we know, we know that if it were not for you and for your Spirit making our hearts alive, Father, we would be dead on the vine. And we are so thankful that the blood of Christ that covers our sin is the same blood that stirs our hearts that ripens our praise so that we're not just here miming something we don't believe in. We're here because the king did come. Because the lamb was taken to the altar. He was bound to the altar. And that the blood of his covenant brought us life. And so we come and we praise you. We worship you. Every day is our Palm Sunday. And as your pilgrims, as your disciples marched to Jerusalem, the city of the great king, Father, we march to the nations. To the nations across the street from us, God. To the Gentiles that sit in our families, among our friends. And we will tell them 
so that their world might be shaken. And Father, we are confident. We are confident in your promise that your kingdom will come and your will will be done. And so, Father, help us to raise up praise on ripe lips, to shout your glory both today and every day, and to remember that our King has come and the joy and the confidence that that brings to his people. May we go and may we make disciples of the nations in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.